My friends, I cannot tell you how good it is to be back here. I don't know that we had made it a full week into our time away before my wife looked at me kind of emotionally and said to me, how are we supposed to do this? I miss my church family. I miss my people. And every week while we were gone, we had conversations about how much we missed our church family and gathering with our church family. And I have to say to you, thank you. I, I have heard of so many pastors who have gone away on times like this, and they have not looked forward to returning. Uh, but we really wanted to come back, and we're so thankful to be back here. And so I want to say thank you to you for being a people who, as Nathan talked about last week, love God and love each other well. And we love you, and we are so grateful to be back here with you today. And, and in the weeks to come, I'll talk more about our time away. But today, my friends, we got to get to our passage we got to get to our passage because we are covering an entire chapter in our study of Mark today, Mark chapter 13. And I'm excited. This is not just any passage that we're going to talk about. From the beginning to the end of this passage, Jesus is prophesying about future events. In Mark chapter 13, he is going to be talking to his disciples about events that are going to happen 40 years after this conversation. When a Roman general named Titus will come into Jerusalem and level the temple and level Jerusalem and slaughter hundreds of thousands of its people. And he is going to prophesy those events for his followers. But also, while he is looking at the end of the temple and the tribulation of the people in Jerusalem, he is going to look through those near events to a further event and teach them some principles about a great tribulation and about the end of the age. And so we want to look for that. As Jesus is teaching his disciples principles about the end of the temple and tribulation in Jerusalem, he's going to be also teaching them some things about a great tribulation that is to come and the end of the age and his second coming. He's going to weave all of these teachings together and we're going to need to focus on some of the language in order to know which one he's talking about primarily as he keeps them both in view throughout his teaching. So open with me to Mark chapter 13 and we are going to walk through this passage and come to at least some understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. And as you are turning there in your Bibles and your devices, let's remind ourselves where we've been. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Mark chapter 12. And where is Jesus in Mark chapter 12? He's in the temple in the entire chapter, isn't he? He's in the temple and he is correcting the Jewish leaders and he is teaching his disciples. And now the day is coming to an end and it is time for Jesus and his disciples to leave the temple. This is Jesus' last time leaving this temple. And as they go, chapter 13 begins. Maybe. I don't know if it's my finger. There we go, you guys. It's been a while since I've used the clicker. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. As they're coming out of the temple, one of Jesus' disciples, which one? We don't know. 
says, look at Jesus. Look at the magnificence of the entire temple structure and all that makes up the temple structure. And it was magnificent. Herod the Great had started a renovation of the temple decades before, and he had spared no expense in this renovation, so that as it stood there this day, it was one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It shone with light, white-colored stone and with gold overlay over much of the exterior so that when the sun hit it, it shone like the sun at the top of Mount Moriah. It was a thing of beauty, a thing of majesty. The ancient historian Josephus, writing just a few years after Mark 13, says this about the temple. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones of the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and six in breadth. Some of these stones that this disciple mentions were the size of railroad boxcars. And he looks at all of this. This disciple looks at all of this as the setting sun catches all of this gold and all of this light-colored stone and the temple is ablaze like flame. And he says, Jesus, look at this. Wow, in all capital letters. This is absolutely amazing. And I'm not sure that he anticipated Jesus' response. Jesus' response in verse 2, And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The buildings that you are so in awe of, the buildings that you take so much pride in, they are going to be completely and utterly destroyed. Now, if you are Jesus' disciples and you're walking out with him and you hear this, you might have some questions, right? Uh, Jesus, is this going to happen this week? Jesus, I've seen you exercise a whole lot of power. Are you the one who's going to destroy the temple? Jesus, could you tell me when it's going to happen? I don't really want to be inside during this utter destruction. Wouldn't you have some questions? And Jesus' disciples have questions. They make their way out of the temple and across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives where the temple is still in full view and two sets of brothers are going to get alone with Jesus and ask him the big question they have about these events in verses 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? As they look across at the temple and think of Jesus' words, they have a big question. Jesus, what is going to be the sign that this destruction of the temple is about to take place? But I think they're asking even more than that. Yes, they're asking about when the destruction of the temple is going to take place. But when they ask about when all these things are going to take place, 
we need to understand that the disciples understood that the destruction of the temple would only go hand in hand with the end of the age and the establishment of a forever kingdom of the Messiah. They wrapped all these things into one, the destruction of the temple, Jesus' return, and the end of the age. We can see this very clearly from the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, right? Matthew 24 is a parallel passage to Mark 13. And in Matthew 24, the disciples' question is phrased like this. And uh, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the what? Sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Matthew helps us understand all that was in the disciples' mind when they asked for a sign that all of these things were about to happen. Yes, the destruction of the temple and your return and the end of the age. They wrapped them all into one event here. And they want to know what's, what's the sign of all of this. And now Jesus is going to answer their question. Knowing that this is not one single event, but two separate events, he is going to answer their question and he is going to intertwine teaching about both of those times together. And so he is going to be teaching about a near event in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple and the persecution of Jews in Jerusalem. And as he teaches about that near event, he is going to be looking through that event to a greater future event, a great tribulation and the end of an age, and the end of the age. He's going to teach about these two things in a way that is intertwined. And what we're going to see is early in the passage, his focus is on 70 AD. And the end of the age is in the background. And as he moves through the passage, the end of the age is going to move more and more out into the foreground. Throughout most of this passage, both events are in mind, but one of them or the other will be more of the focus as Jesus is teaching. And the language of the passage will help us to understand which one is the primary focus as Jesus is teaching. This idea of looking at a near event in order to prophesy about a further greater event is one that is common in Old Testament prophecy. We think of Daniel prophesying about an abomination in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11. A prophecy that was first fulfilled through a man named Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. But as we're going to see a little bit later, has a greater fulfillment yet to come through one referred to as the man of lawlessness. He's prophesying about this near event, but he is looking through it to a greater further event. This is true as we read through prophets like Isaiah or Zechariah, who are regularly talking about the blessing of establishing the kingdom of Israel once again after the exile in Babylon. But as they're talking about the blessing of reestablishing Israel in Jerusalem, they are constantly looking forward to the establishment of a messianic kingdom that will be far greater. And so they are looking at these near events, but constantly speaking to these further and greater events. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing as he is talking about these two things and answering their questions. He is going to be speaking to the events of 70 AD and allowing them to foreshadow 
the end of the age and a greater tribulation to come. Now, what is it that the disciples specifically asked Jesus for? They asked him for a sign, didn't they? He said, what is the sign, Jesus, that all of this is about to happen? Wouldn't that be nice? Can you give us the sign that all of this is about to happen so we're not caught off guard? Friends, Jesus is going to give them that sign in verse 14. We're going to get to that sign in verse 14. But before we get to that sign in verse 14, Jesus is going to give them three what I have called preludes that lead up to that. Jesus is very clear that these preludes are not the sign that the end is near. As a matter of fact, he says to his disciples about these signs, do not be alarmed when you see these preludes because they are not the end. And so these preludes are the music that plays. They are the music of a broken creation that is going through the labor pains, desiring to be reborn. You don't know how long these preludes are going to play before the sign comes and the curtain is opened on the events of the end, but these preludes play. Jesus wants us to be very clear. Don't be alarmed. These are not the sign of the end. What are these preludes that play throughout history? The first, messianic claims. And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In the parallel in Matthew, Jesus says there are going to be many who come to claim to be they are the Messiah. A little later on, he's going to say, some of these false claimants will even claim to be able to do signs and wonders. Jesus wants them to understand these are false messiahs. They're not a sign of anything. Don't follow after them. There were lots of false messiahs in the first century before 70 AD. Uh, Judas the Galilean, Simon of Perea, Enthronges of Judea, Menahem the Galilean, John of Gishala, Simon Bargiora, and many more. These are some of the most famous. They gathered hundreds upon hundreds, some thousands upon thousands of adherents as false messiahs. And in every situation, Rome came in and killed the false claimant and dispersed their followers, and the movement ended at that point. And Jesus wants them to understand, these are false messiahs. They're signs of nothing. Don't follow after these people. The second prelude that Jesus teaches them about are wars and natural disasters. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Jesus knew that his followers in the first century were going to be tempted every time they heard about wars going on in the region to say, this must be it. This is, it. This is the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. Every time they heard about a great earthquake or a famine, they might say, this is it. This is the end. And Jesus says, don't get caught up in that. Right? Don't be those who are alarmed or spread that kind of alarm to others. Perhaps Jesus looks further down the road at his followers. 
knowing that there would be some who every time there were wars in certain regions of the world, every time there were massive weather events would say, this must be it. Jesus must be coming back now. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be alarmed. This isn't the sign. This is just a prelude. The sign I'll talk to you about in a moment. But these are just the preludes. The third prelude that Jesus talks about is persecution. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says to his disciples, and I want you to notice the number of times Jesus uses the word in these verses, you. Right? He's speaking to his disciples, you. He says, you are going to undergo persecutions, friends. Think about the four he's talking to in particular. It's just a matter of weeks after this that James is executed by the sword. As he's sitting there right there and Jesus is is talking to him about these persecutions. James is going to be run through with the sword just a few weeks later. And Jesus wants them to understand when James is killed in a few weeks, that's not the sign of the end. That's not the sign these events are about to happen. When Peter is perhaps crucified upside down in Rome, that's not the sign that these events are about to happen. These and the thousands of other believers who would be persecuted and martyred between this time and 70 AD, none of that was the sign that the end was upon them, that the end of the temple was here, that these events were about to happen. They were just life in Christ as it was lived out in a society that was opposed to him. And it has continued for 2,000 years as people have been martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. Last year, there were thousands of followers of Jesus who were thrown in jail, who were killed because they followed Jesus. Jesus wants to understand, that's not the sign of the end. These are just the preludes that are playing. Now, I want you to notice, as Jesus goes into this prelude of persecution that has been constantly playing for 2,000 years, there is a promise. Did you catch the promise? What was the promise? proclamation to all nations and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations Jesus understands as he is talking about these persecutions that his disciples might be anxious saying what if the gospel doesn't make it through what if ultimately these persecutions silence the gospel and all of this is for nothing and Jesus promises them that will not happen The persecutions will not win. The gospel of Jesus Christ will win and will continue to spread to all nations. All nations despite this persecution. As a matter of fact, I'd go a step further and say the gospel spread to all nations in part 
because of the persecution. As we read through the book of Acts and think about early church history, the gospel spread to all nations because believers were being persecuted. They were being persecuted in Jerusalem, and where did they go? To Judea and Samaria to get away from it. And they spread the gospel everywhere they went. They were being persecuted there, so where did they go? To the uttermost parts of the earth with the message of Jesus. And so God actually used these wicked persecutions in order to accomplish his great good of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. Isn't that just like him? Right? That is his goodness. Now, Jesus has been talking to them about these events in 70 AD, and he's about to talk to them further about these events in 70 AD. And this brings up a question for us, and that is, was the gospel proclaimed to all nations by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Right? Was the gospel proclaimed to all nations by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? It may surprise you that the biblical answer to this question very well could be yes, it was. Right? The, the scriptures are our authority, and I want you to look at what the scriptures say about the spread of the gospel before the destruction here. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. Paul says the gospel is spread throughout the whole world and it is bearing fruit and increasing. A little while later, Paul writes in Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed where? In all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And the verse that I think has the largest bearing upon what we just read, Romans 16, 26. Let me start back in verse 25 to give us some context. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, here we go, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to who? To all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. All these verses, written years before the destruction of the temple, contend that in fact, at this point, the gospel had spread throughout the world, throughout all of creation, to all nations. And so the Bible's answer to, did in fact the, the, the gospel spread to all nations before 70 AD, may very well be yes. Yes, it did. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. It begins in Jerusalem. It spreads to Judea. It spreads to Samaria. It spreads to the uttermost parts of the earth. And no longer is the gospel localized around the Jews and Jerusalem. It is a part of all nations. It is a part of the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, do we have further work to do as those who are a part of the uttermost parts of the earth to continue to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to others in the uttermost parts of the earth before Christ's second coming? Absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. Right? This is the great promise, proclamation to all nations. The gospel will not be stopped by tribulation. Now, as we think about these preludes and this promise, they are so very important. But I just want to remind you, what did the disciples ask for? A sign, a sign that all of this is about to happen. And now, finally, in verse 14, we get to the sign. 
Right? What is the sign? It's the abomination. Notice the word but. I've been giving you these preludes that are not the sign. But now we're going to get to the sign, friends. Now we're going to get to the sign that you need to watch for. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, right? This is the sign, friends. Recognize it, understand it. And what should you do when you see this sign? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Right? When I was younger, sometimes I get confused and think these instructions were about Christ's second coming. And I'm like, how cruel is he? Right? Don't pray that you're not pregnant. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Are we really not supposed to pray for Christ's coming for the next month? No, absolutely not, right? This is clearly about the events of 70 AD. And he says, those of you who are in Judea, when you see this sign, the, the general Titus is there as an abomination in the temple. What are you to do? Flee. Don't look back. Don't gather your stuff. Get out of there. This term, abomination of desolation, is drawn out of Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11. And it describes a figure who would desecrate the temple and abolish the daily sacrifices. It first came about, its fulfillment first came about, as I said earlier, in 167 BC, when a man named Antiochus Epiphanes led Roman soldiers in and they forbid circumcision, outlawed offerings in the temple, built a pagan offer, uh, offering, I'm sorry, a pagan altar to Zeus on top of the altar of the Lord and sacrificed swine, unclean swine on the altar. This was an abomination of desolation, the temple being desecrated. But Jesus here is speaking of a second abomination. When the general Titus in 70 A.D., would come in with a desire to take the temple of Jerusalem and turn it into a temple of Roman worship, putting up the Roman standards throughout the temple, entering into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was supposed to go once a year and setting it up as a place to worship the Roman pantheon. It was a desecration of everything that God had established as holy. And Jesus tells his followers, when you see this abomination, right? You, you remember what happened with Antiochus. You're going to see it again. When you see it in Titus, what do you do? Flee Judea. Get out of here and go to the mountains so that you might be saved. And in 70 AD, when these events happened exactly as Jesus said they would, what did the Christians do? Do you know? They all fled Judea and were saved. The Christians that lived in and around Jerusalem at that time saw the sign. They had faith in Jesus' words and they left everything they owned and the lives that they knew. They left it all and ran to the mountains in order to be saved. Uh, ancient historians Eusebius and Epiphanasius 
said that the Christians fled Jerusalem when these signs came about to a place called Pella. Not the one in Iowa with the windows. But across the Jordan River, at the foot of the mountains, they fled to this village where the Christians established themselves in a community there. Isn't that a beautiful story? Right? They, they, they trusted Jesus' words, and in faith they left everything in order to go and do what he had called them to do. That's so beautiful. But this abomination of Titus, like the abomination of Antiochus Epiphanes 250 years earlier, are not the largest and biggest fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy about an abomination of desolation. That, I would argue, is yet to come. That the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He is talking about what is going to happen immediately before Jesus' return. And he talks about the great abomination that will happen through the man of lawlessness. Let not one deceive you in any way. For this day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the ultimate abomination. When the man of lawlessness, referred to in 1 John as the Antichrist, will desecrate the temple of God's people by establishing himself as the center of all worship. This is the abomination that is still to come. Jesus is looking at the events of 70 AD. They're his focus, but he is regularly teaching towards the end of the age. This isn't just about the end of the temple. This is about the end of the age. And now we're going to see, right, up until this time, 70 AD has been primary, and he's been teaching some things about the end of the age. Now we are going to see the end of the age become more primary in his teaching, and I'll show you where verse 24, I think, shows us that that is true. And 70 AD is going to be a little more in the background. He says in verses 19 and 20, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has, has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose... He shortened the days. Now there is some sense in which the destruction and desolation that took place in Jerusalem in 70 AD was like nothing Jerusalem, the city of God, had ever experienced before. Josephus the historian says that 1.1 million Jews were killed by the Romans during this time. And modern scholars believe that if Josephus is even anywhere in the neighborhood of right in this situation, that that means that two-thirds to three-quarters of all of the Jewish inhabitants of Judea were killed during this time. Josephus also says they crucified, the Romans crucified so many Jews during this time that they ran out of wood. During the five-month siege of Jerusalem, starvation and cannibalism were regular practices within the city of Jerusalem. Tremendous tribulation that took place for God's people. But I think here Jesus is using that in order to point to an even greater tribulation, like nothing the world has ever seen. 
a great tribulation that will be led, where persecution will be led not by Titus, but by the man of lawlessness. And it will be cut short for the sake of God's elect. Jesus continues and says, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Jesus, I've given you the warnings. Don't give in to this. He says that there's going to be many false messiahs, false prophets who come, and they're going to try and use miracles and signs as a way to strengthen their ministry and give credit to their ministry. Jesus says, don't buy into this. As a matter of fact, Josephus talks about a number of different false messiahs that came before 70 AD here who claimed to be able to do signs and wonders. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says that there will be this, this man of lawlessness who will come and claim to be God in the flesh and will do powerful miracles and signs through the power of Satan. Jesus says, don't be fooled by signs and wonders. These are absolutely not a marker that a person is of God or from God. He says, don't be fooled by this, friends. There were, are, and will be many false teachers, false prophets, and antichrists that will perform miracles and wonders by the power of the enemy. Jesus says, friends, pay attention. That's not the sign. That's not what you're watching for. That's not what a true Messiah is about. Now, I've talked to you about the fact that Jesus has been looking through 70 AD towards the end of the age, and, and now he's swung back and is looking, I think, at the end of the age. 70 AD is still in view here. But I believe through verse, in verses 24 through 27, 70 AD disappears almost entirely. And Jesus is speaking about the end of the age. I believe that in part because of what he is talking about, but I also believe it because of the language we see in the passage. If we are reading carefully here, we will notice a change in the pronouns that Jesus is using. In verses 5 through 23, he has been using the pronoun you, right? The second person pronoun you to his disciples about events that they're going to experience at least parts of. 25 different times he has used the second person pronoun in verses 5 through 23. But in verses 24 through 27, he shifts and there is no you in these verses. The only pronoun that appears is the third person pronoun, they. Because Jesus is now going to talk about events and a generation that the you's won't be a part of. Only the they's will be a part of. And so in verses 24 through 27, he says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right? But, but in those days, after that tribulation, 
right? I think that phrase, that tribulation, helps us to understand that what Jesus is talking about in verses 19 through 23 has a focus on those end days, not on the destruction of the temple. Both are in mind, but there's been a shift, right? That tribulation. After that tribulation led by the man of lawlessness, what will happen? There will be cataclysmic events. And after those cataclysmic events, what will happen? Jesus will return upon the clouds. And when Jesus returns upon the clouds in order to call his people from all corners to himself, where is he going to return? According to Zechariah chapter 14, he will return on the clouds to exactly where he is doing this teaching, the Mount of Olives. Right? He will return to the exact place where he sits right now with his disciples, the Mount of Olives. He will return on the clouds. Uh, the cosmic events that are described here, like the sun and the moon and the stars all giving way, may be descriptions of literal events, but they don't have to be. They may very well simply be a use of cosmic language in order to help us understand the enormity of the events that Jesus has in mind here. Right? I'd warn you, this kind of cosmic destruction language is used many times in the Old Testament prophets as symbolic language to talk about the enormity of what's going on. I'm thinking of passages like Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 32, Amos 8, Isaiah 40, and on and on, where there is description of this kind of cosmic language of sun, moon, and stars failing, which actually is just being used poetically in order to help us understand the cosmic nature of what is taking place. Maybe, maybe not, right? There's a fair amount in this passage that is confusing. But, but I don't want us to lose the big thing in the midst of all of that. Jesus is coming back, right? Isn't that the big thing in all of this? He says, in the midst of this, the Son of Man is returning. And who is the Son of Man? Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man dozens of times in the Gospels. And he says, I am coming back and I will gather my people to myself. In light of this, what should we do? In light of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, what should the disciples do? In light of Jesus' return, which we still await, and the end of the age, what should we do? I think the answer is the same for both. Pay attention. Stay alert. Keep watch. Jesus is going to say, stay awake. And I believe that applies in both of these situations. The events that are to come in 70 AD and the events that are to come at the end of the age. First, he's going to address the events that will take place in 70 AD. I want you to notice the return of the you language here. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Titus is right there. He's at the gates, friends. Watch for it. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, you can trust me here. The things I'm saying, the things I'm promising, they are 100%. They will absolutely happen. 
Jesus tells his followers, pay attention to the signs like you do with the trees. You're able to watch the trees and from the signs understand what's going to happen next. He says, in that same way, followers, pay attention to the signs. I've given you the sign. Pay attention to what's going on so that you know when this is going to happen and what's going to happen next when you can see him at the gates. When the abomination of desolation takes place, you know that you need to flee. Then he says to them, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right? Jesus says, you guys, many of you who are here as a part of this generation are still going to be around when Titus comes with these armies and destroys the temple. When is Jesus saying this? Around 30 A.D. And when was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. And how long is a Jewish generation? About 40 years. Jesus wants them to understand a generation will not pass before these events take place. And so be ready. Watch for Titus at the gates. Now Jesus is going to change his focus, right? He's had 70 AD in in front here for these few verses. Now he's going to change his focus, and the end of the age is going to be clearly in sight. We notice this from the language, but concerning that day or that hour. He's just been talking about these things, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now he wants them to understand something totally different, that day and that hour that are the end of the age. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father know when that day is. Right? Jesus as God has intentionally restricted some of his knowledge as he has come to earth as a human being and he says, only the Father has an understanding of when that day is. Right, That that great day, that day that is the end of the age. And now he is going to give them some instructions that are absolutely true for those who are awaiting 70 A.D., and needed to flee when they saw those signs, and those who are awaiting Jesus' second coming, and the end of the age. It is true for everyone. Those disciples and all of us ever since, he says, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Right? They don't know exactly when Titus is going to come, and we don't know exactly when these great tribulations and the end of the age is going to come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. Great instructions at the end of a long sermon. Stay awake. (laughs) When exactly this destruction is going to take place in Jerusalem? He says, you don't know. When exactly is my return in the end of the age? You don't know. But in both cases... Be alert. Stay awake. He wants them to understand, I'm coming back. Don't slip into spiritual sleepiness and lethargy. You don't know when I'm coming back. You don't know 
when your last day on earth is going to be, don't allow yourself to get caught up in the things of this world and slip into spiritual lethargy. When Jesus says stay awake, he is not talking about physical awakeness, is he? He's not saying, friends, hit the caffeine hard. You're going to need to stay up for decades. That's not what he is saying here. He is saying, be spiritually alert and attuned. It is easy for us to drift into a spiritual slumber. The routines of this life take over and we get focused on things other than Jesus and his kingdom. We get caught up in a life focused on how work is going, how our kids are doing in school, how our retirement accounts are doing, how things are going in this meeting I have here or there, or many things that are far more mundane than any of that. Jesus says, don't drift into slumber, just allowing yourself to be concerned about the things that the world is concerned about. Stay spiritually awake and alert. You're going to stand before me one day. Don't nod off. Wake up. How, oh, this, is, this is a long passage, right? And, and, and fairly confusing. And I've turned this long passage into a long sermon, right? And how does the very end of it uh, end up here? What is Jesus' command after all of this? Don't lose it in the details, right? The primary command is, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. Let me and the kingdom, right? Let Jesus and the kingdom be your focus.